0: reading from the book of John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and, to go, wherever, and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered together today truly thankful to come into your presence and grateful, uh, because like Peter, you have called each of us uniquely by name to love and to serve you among the nations Uh, But, Lord, so often, um, in the midst of busyness and distractions, we forget who we are and where we're going. Uh, So, God, we pause, Lord, this hour to listen to your voice. And we ask, Lord, that uh, through Dr. Erickson's message and our worship, you would speak the living and timely and perhaps even healing words we need to hear. Lord, soften our hearts to receive all that you prepared for us. And empower Dr. Erickson now with the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we long for more of you and pray that we would not leave this room the same. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Good morning. I morning. Um Winston Gooden. I'm the Dean in the School of Psychology, and I'd like to welcome each of you to the chapel this morning. This is um, the opening event of the Integration Symposium, and um, unlike other years when uh, Wednesday morning begins with a lecture, we're beginning with traditional chapel and a preacher this morning. But before we do that, I'd like also Uh, To have you join me in welcoming our special guest for the symposium, our speaker, Dr. Kelly O'Donnell and his wife, Michelle. Won't you help me welcome them to Fuller and to Chaplin for the symposium this morning? (laughs) Would you stand for us? Our speaker this morning is Dr. Cynthia Erickson, who really needs no introduction, so we're having a little bit of conversation there as to whether she should be introduced. But I'm happy to introduce uh, Dr. Erickson. Um, Those of you who know her knows that she has a passion uh, for member care and for those persons who go out and serve uh, the global church and uh, her own uh, work as a student in the graduate program here, started in Liberia when she studied child soldiers. And I don't know how she got through all of that research, knowing her tender-heartedness, looking at the tough things those kids had to deal with. But she has been a beacon here at Fuller as the leader of the Headington program, and a huge cadre of students who are doing their work on um, the impact of trauma on, on folk and how resilience allows them to cope with the traumatic experiences they have to go through. But she um, will bring the word this morning from a deep place of the spirit, someone who is passionate and dedicated and steeped in the word. Won't you help me welcome her this morning, Dr. Erickson? Thank you.
2: Yes, as I thought about coming and speaking to you this morning, I thought what an amazing marker this is, both for the School of Psychology as well as for myself personally. And it is a joy. It is a true joy. As Winston mentioned, this is the beginning of our integration lectures for 2009. And the integration lectures are always where the School of Psychology takes time to really think about how psychology and faith and theology and the church link together, how we integrate that service. But I'm really excited because this is the first time ever that the integration lectures have focused on mission and mental health, have focused on missionaries, on doing psychology, on thinking about mental health in a missions context. That is fantastic. It's about time. Now, the second marker, the personal marker that this is for me, I think, is also, as Winston mentioned, that it is nearly 20 years that I've been thinking about this mission's mental health myself. I started as a student in the School of Clinical Psychology back in 1990. And, um, And the year before that, I had finished a discipleship training school with Youth with a Mission in Amsterdam, Netherlands and in Bogota, Colombia. And it was in the context of that discipleship training school that I found myself asking the question how do we care for people in these deep places of need? Deep places like addiction and poverty and violence. I mean, the kids that I got to hang out with and spend time with in Bogota were kids that were living in the barrios that were impacted by the cartel violence. They were seeing death. There, were, there would be bodies in the, in the neighborhood every once in a while, and they struggled with poverty every day. And they were also some of the most joyful kids that I'd ever experienced in my life. What a message. What a gift. So I came to Fuller. Well, actually, I wanna, the other thing I want to add is that one of my teammates at, on this Youth with the Mission Discipleship Training School was a psychologist. Fancy that. A psychologist from England. And when we went on our outreaches, when we spent time in different places, every missionary wanted to spend time with Anne. They were all signing up to have hours of counseling with Anne. And I thought, my goodness, well, I'm going to focus on these people. I'm going to focus on the needs of the people living in that country. Someone else can look at the needs of the caregivers. Well, that was not to be. (laughs) Um, But it brought me to a place where I started at Fuller in 1990 absolutely certain that God was calling me to be a missionary with mental health training. And you know what? Fuller was a tremendous place for me to take that journey, to begin that journey. As Winston mentioned, I had a very flexible advisor who gave me the freedom to do my master's research in Liberia, West Africa. And then when I returned from that trip, um, returned from the experience of seeing trauma in those children, I realized the needs of the caregivers in a very new way. I was very depressed, I had a very difficult time re-entering. In fact, I remember clearly in one of Winston class- Winston's classes that he was teaching at the time, I remember thinking, what does this have to do with children dying in Africa? Tell me that. And it challenged me to say, how do I integrate this? How do I make sense of the needs of the world and mental health care with what I'm doing as a worker, what I'm doing as a missionary, what I'm doing as a psychologist? Well, the other piece that was really meaningful for me about being at Fuller at the time is that I joined a community that was already here that cared for mental health and missions. There were students that had already created a group called ETM, Enabling the Missionary. And there were students like Jeff Ellis, who's joined us today, and Charlie Schaefer, and um, Hans Richard, and Laura English, and Deb Hoffman, and Jeannie Fulbrecht, all classmates of mine who were concerned with mission and committed to making their training as psychologists something that would impact sharing the gospel, bringing mission to the world. And you know what? They are profound people. And they made a great difference. They, as a student-led organization, organized two different consultations where we pulled together missionaries and missions um, leaders and mental health professionals to talk about the needs of member care. This was as students on top of all their other work. I think Hans end up with mono after the second one. Um, But it was tremendous, and it was in the context of those experiences that I met Kelly and Michelle for the first time. And Kelly and Michelle O'Donnell are, I can't express this to you, they are pioneers in this community. They are models. They were gracious to us as students. They welcomed us as people that they wanted to know. They valued us and our input. And they were models to us of what it means to be missionaries and psychologists. They're both psychologists graduates from Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola. And they have lived overseas for their careers caring for missionaries giving their lives to care for those who are sharing the gospel amen to that <laughs> well my plan to be a missionary of mental health training may have been what i felt called to but i certainly didn't understand exactly what the the context was going to be like somehow in those intervening years i ended up an academic I don't quite know how that happened. Sometimes I kind of stop and wonder, but I'm married to a wonderful landscape architect, and we live here in Pasadena, and we have two amazing sons. And I wouldn't trade that for anything, but I am still a missionary with mental health training. And it's in the context of the Headington program, as Winston mentioned, that I get to continue this care, this wanting to understand what it means to take mental health into international settings wanting to understand what it means to, to think about trauma and the experience of trauma that those in communities that have been impacted by war and violence and disaster, what their needs are and how we as a community can support them. But part of this process of being an academic has also been in teaching. And one of the most joyful experiences of being an academic and being a teacher has been being able to co-teach a class with Dr. Jude Tiersma Watson called Self-Care and Mission. We don't necessarily like that title very much because it's a lot more than just self-care. It's actually member care, what Winston mentioned earlier. The idea of caring for whole members of a missions organization. What do they holistically need? And Jude and I have been teaching this class for the last uh, eight years, and we have used a model that Kelly developed and we use Kelly's text doing member care well, which you can buy out on the book table. I'm like totally plugging for Kelly today. Um, But we use a model that Kelly describes in his book that is really simple, but it's profound. And this model of member care, of caring for members of an organization, has its its five concentric circles. And the very center, the very central circle, is Master Care. Reminding us, the very center of what it means to flourish in our work, the very center of what it means to be a leader, is in the context of our relationship with Christ. That is the core. The next levels are our relationships with ourselves and others, our self-care and our mutual care then the relationship that we have and the care that the Sending Agency provides, then other professionals who have insights that can support missions, and then the network of care that pulls all those pieces together and gives provides education and support to others. But it's in that core of Master Care that I want to talk to you today. I want to challenge us and encourage us of what it means to be called as a leader what it means to be called as a missionary. That we sense our Christ's call in our lives, and it's out of his knowledge of us that we are called, and it's in the freedom and grace of that that we can lead and support others. The call to ministry, the call to leadership. You may have noticed that the title for today's talk is named known and called. And as I thought about what I wanted to share with you today, I realized that the thing I want you to leave with the most is a sense of freedom in who God has made you to be and who you are known to be in your leadership. And I chose, well, I think God chose actually, the scripture from John as a reminder of what it means to be called out of a sense of known, being known. We put a lot of pressure on leaders. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves, actually, as leaders. We have a lot to live up to when we feel called to something. And we have pretty intense notions about what it means to leader, what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a missionary, what it means to be a professor. I have some pretty intense notions of what I imagine people expect of me. And, you know, we get those notions, I think, a lot from our culture. Um, I mean, look at what's going on around us right now. We have leaders trying to make very big decisions for our entire country, our economy. We have world leaders trying to make decisions for peace. And when we think about what it means to choose those leaders, we sure go into a a lot of trouble. Um, You think about just the campaign that we went through and what that was like. Um, We listened to the the candidates' ideas. We thought about what they were sharing. We wanted to know if we could trust them. And what did we look at when we wanted to know if we could trust them? We looked at their past. We looked at what they'd already done. We looked at the relationships they'd had. We'd we'd look at whether or not they paid their taxes recently. That's been coming up quite a bit for our cabinet members, our cabinet nominees. Um, We look at where they spent time, who they allied themselves with, and then out of those past experiences, we're, we're asked, the public is asked to say, can you trust that this person would make good decisions for you? Can you trust that they would lead? Can you trust them with the authority to lead? That's a big, that's a big challenge. You know, the, that past behavior can end up making or breaking a career. But what does the scripture that we read today remind us about past behavior for Peter? Let's think about this candidate, this candidate for being a church leader. Imagine this track record. Peter has been very active in this small group of followers of Jesus Christ. Peter is probably the unofficial leader of the band and has been following this visionary teacher. He's really confident that he's going to see it through and stake a claim for this new kingdom that his teacher Jesus has been speaking of. In fact, he's publicly claimed to Jesus that he would lay down his life for him. Yet, things start to change. Peter's expectations start to fade, and things aren't going the way that he anticipated. He had big plans, and it was beginning to look like Jesus was actually going to get arrested and defamed. In fact, it started to look like that Jesus' life was in danger, and perhaps even the lives of his followers, Peter included. And then what happened? Suddenly, in a moment of panic, Peter denied knowing Christ. I'm not a follower. And then he did it again, a second time. And then he did it a third time. I do not know him. I am not a follower. Then the cock crowed, and Peter was heartbroken. Now you'd think that that would break a career, could we trust someone who denied us three times, three separate times? Peter was heartbroken. So if we were going to choose leaders for the church, the very foundation of this new church that Christ is beginning, what would we do? First of all, the unimaginable has happened. Christ is alive. The resurrection has occurred. Christ is here. Christ is triumphant. He meets with his disciples, he, he shows them himself, and then he sets about starting to create this leadership for his new church. And let's look at Peter's resume for this leadership job. Hmm. I know that many of you, if you're under call for the Presbyterian Church, have to take an MMPI, a personality inventory. What do you think Peter's personality inventory would look like? A bit rash, cracks under pressure, may not be as loyal as you would like. You know, Would you vote for him? Would you call Peter to be the leader of your church? Even if he has paid his taxes, would you vote for him? And here we are at the text that calls Peter to the profound service. Of the early church. This is actually one of the two scriptures that the Roman Catholic Church uses to to show that Peter is the foundation of the church. This is the man who denied Christ. Is it a man who always proved himself strong? Is he a man who is always dependable? Is he a man who is undeniably, yes I intended that pun, ready for the job? No. He's, in the scripture that we read, he's a grieved man. He is a man who's known for the ways that he let Christ down. He is humbled. And it's out of that that he's called to serve. What a profound picture for us. Fuller Seminary is a place that is bursting with leaders. I mean, bursting. Think about it. Bursting. All of you, all of you are leaders. Whether you're training to be a pastor, or a psychologist, or a missionary, whether you are a pastor, whether you are in a position of leadership in your family or in your church, all of us are leaders. How did we get that job? Is it because we have the perfect resume? Is it because we knew someone? I'm gonna suggest that maybe knowing and being known by your heavenly father is the way you got the job simon son of john peter is singled out he's named when we call out a name we want someone's attention we want them to turn to us when we hear our name called we turn and enter into a conversation into a relationship simon son of john Now, the the commentator, Raymond Brown, suggests that that's actually kind of a formal naming. It's it's kind of reinstituting the relationship with Peter. It's actually reminiscent of the first time Jesus met Peter. When he said in John chapter 1, Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas. He named him then. And he drew him into relationship. And it's here... That when Christ names Peter again, Simon, son of John, he asks, Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Every gospel uh, in the scripture has an account of Peter's denial, each one. But only John has this conversation where Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And three times he asks, Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? There's a reason that Jesus asks three times. There's no overt accusation, no recrimination. There isn't even a specific statement of forgiveness or a ritual to purify or somehow show that Peter is forgiven. As a psychologist, there's not even a statement of, I understand why you did it. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus cannot change the past. He cannot change that Peter denied him. He cannot take them away. He can't take those three denials away. But what he does, in his, in his asking three times is he puts himself out there in relationship with peter and gives peter the chance to feel that and i mean feel it the scripture says that peter was grieved that peter was hurt after the third time grieved <sighs> he jesus allows Peter to taste the bitterness of his denial. He doesn't shame him, he doesn't accuse him, but he allows him to feel the truth of the denial. He allows him to experience the truth of the ways that he fell short. As I was thinking about the scene and trying to kind of wrap myself in that experience, I began to think about my own experiences of bitter grief and disappointment when I disappoint someone I love. It may be simple things like not being able to be all of the places that I would like to be for my kids, or forgetting an important detail for my husband, or simply making mistakes and grieved when that relationship when there are moments in the relationship of loving someone that actually add that question of do you love me what does it mean to be in that place of uncertainty the place of grief of unknown as i thought about that i thought about an experience i had recently where i had the opportunity to do research and work in amman jordan with iraqi and jordanian aid workers who were serving Iraqi refugees in Amman. Now, my husband and I talked a lot about my taking this trip and what it would mean for us, and we worked hard. We thought we covered every base of soccer practices, soccer matches, third grade written reports that were due, math homework, um, grocery shopping, sack lunches, I mean, all of the details. Um, But the details that we didn't include were illness. And within a couple of days of my leaving to go to Amman, my husband and my older son both got very sick. It was awful. Um, I, had, I had brought a webcam and had my laptop and so I would Skype call. Every morning, with 6 a.m. my time would be 8 p.m. their time. It was the end of their day. And the boys would be just getting ready to go to bed and they would all look in the camera and say hi to mommy. Um, But I would look at my husband's eyes and I would see how tired and how spent and how exhausted he was. And I felt helpless. He never said you've got to come home. He never blamed me for what was going on. But it was painful to realize that I couldn't be all that I wanted to be and that I was helpless in that situation. Um, When we came home Um, When I came home from that trip, we had hard conversations. Hard conversations. At least twice, I asked him, do you still like me? (laughs) And, you know, I knew that he loved me, but I wasn't really sure that he liked me at that moment. But when I think about how important it was for us to have those conversations, for us to be able to look at each other and say, I'm sorry I disappointed you. Well, not even say it, but just be together and move forward. That felt like just a taste of what Christ was offering Peter. That Christ was putting out a call to relationship. Putting out a request to come, love me. Christ wasn't asking Peter, do you love me, for Christ's sake. He was asking it for Peter's sake and for that joining in that relationship. It's the same for us as leaders. We can't make our past go away. We can't make the places where we feel vulnerable go away. But we can taste the bitterness and taste the real, the real authentic place of truth in God. what God is doing in our lives. And through God's spirit and God's grace and mercy, we can keep moving in relationship. What are the truths that God wants me to hear? Will I turn toward a relationship with him and turn towards the truth? Will I face the discomfort of having my pains and faults and vulnerabilities known by God? What does Peter do? Peter's answer is this. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. He makes three confessions in response to his three denials. And the confession is love. I love you. It's not, yes, Lord, you are the Messiah. Or, I'm so sorry and I did wrong. But it's, I love you. Raymond Brown, in his commentary, The Anchor Bible, says, He calls it a rehabilitation, Peter's rehabilitation and his commission. And what happens in that immediate aftermath of Peter's acknowledgement and Christ's mercy and being known, that is when Peter is given his call to serve. That is when he's given authority in that very moment of being hurt, recognizing his brokenness. That is where he gets called to lead. How profound. Christ says, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my little sheep. I love, when I was doing some research about this scripture, I love the fact that they talk about the the feeding and tending, you know, and what that means. It's pretty big. You know, feeding is the nourishment. Um, That's an idea from, Philo. Feeding is nourishment. And tending is governance. Tending is actually the authority as you nurture the flock. But what's also amazingly lovely about this scripture is that it makes reference to being a good shepherd and Christ's flock. Christ as the shepherd, his call to us as shepherds. It's a call to relationship, it's a, ca- a call to authority, to responsibility but it's also a call to relationship. Christ names us uniquely. He calls our names. He wants us to turn to him. He knows all that we are and all that we will be. And he calls us to love him and serve his flock out of that unique, broken personhood. He doesn't ask us to pretend to be what we are not. He doesn't say, "Okay, Peter. Now that you're going to take some leadership in the shepherding business, you should know what I expect. You need to always be courageous, always even-tempered, always loyal." He doesn't say that. He says, "Follow me." And the thing that he asks is, "Do you love me?" Then Peter's given that task: "Follow me. Follow me to the fishermen." who earlier in the chapter was out fishing and they ended up with this huge net full of fish that they could barely even pull in the boat. Follow me to Simon, son of John. It should sound familiar because it's basically a reiteration of Christ's call to Peter, that very first call. And it's a reminder to us that the call keeps going. And in Peter's case, the next section of the the text reminds us that it's even to death, even a call to death. Here, after the resurrection, in the context of his commission to serve us, Jesus lets Peter know that his future will hold the very reality of death. The commentators remind us that for the early church, this was actually an enviable thing. I have to admit that when I read it, it sounds like, yikes! But for the early church, that would have actually been an amazing thing for Christ to say, you will be glorified. You will glorify God in this way, not you will be glorified. And as Peter is taking in the magnitude of what this means, the idea that he might be able to be glorified, he suddenly becomes aware of this other guy, John. And he says, what about him? What about John? And you know what I love, Jesus says, none of your business. (laughs) He actually says, what is that to you? But I take it as none of your business you know in our brokenness as leaders it's really none of our business what anyone else is doing in their leadership in terms of what god is doing in their call in who they are and how often do i need jesus to say to me none of your business every day every day i have enough to handle in living the truth that my life holds i really don't need to compare myself to whether i'm good enough or published enough or creative enough, um, or loving enough in reference to someone else's life or someone else's call. Christ is with us and is walking with us in our story, in our call. I wasn't kidding when I said I need to be reminded this of every day. One of the great ironies for me in preparing this talk for today was the struggle that I had to concentrate on how God wanted to use my voice and my story to share his voice and his story. I worried that I wouldn't be as exegetically articulate as my theology colleagues. I was frustrated because I could not think of any cute stories like most of my psychology faculty can. And I was worried that perhaps I might somehow misrepresent mission as I talked about mission and that I would insult the School of Intercultural Studies faculty. You know, I was putting some major burdens on myself in the midst of this. But I have to tell you, in the midst of that self-doubt, It was my own students who ministered to me. This is a powerful image to me of master care and mutual care. Remember those rings? I was with my students on Sunday night and we are praying for the two students who are waiting to hear this Friday about whether or not they've been matched for their final year of psychology internship training. That internship process is quite arduous and quite anxiety-provoking. And after the other students and I prayed for these applicants, one of my students, Bicat, said to me, I was thinking we could pray for you as you prepare for Wednesday. I was humbled. They gathered around me and they laid hands on me and their prayers were a gift. They encouraged me. They released me. They challenged me. And they reminded me that it is ultimately God's word that is spoken today. Not my word. It is the voice of Christ saying, follow me. He knows my doubts. He wants to know that I love him. And he wants me to turn my attention back to him. And he says, follow me. It is in the freedom of being known and experiencing God's grace that we can lead in a stance of mercy and grace for others. As I said at the beginning, today is a marker for me. It's a marker for Fuller to put a stake into the integration of psychology and mission. and It's also a, a marker for me as I continue to consider my calling, this missionary with mental health training. I'm continuing to seek authentically who I am, who I have been named to be, continuing to open my heart to the truth that he already knows, continuing to attempt to live in that truth and face the pain that needs attention. And then, and only then, hearing the call. The call that's been there and will continue to be, follow me. How have you experienced God and being known by Him? Have you heard your name as He calls out to you? Have you sensed the questions that grieve you, that gently point out your pain? The ways that you wish you were different, or perhaps a past that you wish was not there. Jesus is asking for you to turn your attention to loving him. He wants to move forward in friendship. He wants you to experience his grace. He has things for you to do. Follow him. Amen.